Adam, where should we start? Should we start at the very beginning? Is that a very good place to start? I, I guess it is. It's a time for another episode of Technicolor Jesus, the podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers. And today we are tuning up the orchestra and singing all your old favorites. Today we're talking about the sound of music. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. Last week, Adam chose The Sound of Music, so in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does the sound of music matter for the work of the church? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we are going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the sound of music for the lectionary week ahead, which will be Year C, May 8th, Ascension Sunday. Finally, in the end, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following or reading. So, Adam... Somewhere in my wicked childhood, I must have done something good, because now I get to talk about the sound of music with you. <laughs> I guess this is the part where I'm supposed to introduce the movie, but it doesn't really feel like a movie that needs an introduction. I mean, it's the sound of music. Doesn't everybody know the sound of music? I mean, this is Rodgers and Hammerstein's landmark American stage musical for the big screen in 65, the story of a precocious nun named Maria who gets booted out of the abbey and sent to be the governess of a large, strict Austrian family. But it's about a lot more than that. It's a total musical song and dance with Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer at peak game. And then it's this strange political allegory with Austria dancing on the edge of Nazi Germany before the war and a movie trying to tell a story about fascism and resistance and nationalism through song. There's a lot here and a lot of great stuff and a a lot of stuff that, quite frankly, shows its age a little bit. A lot of choices I think we would not make in 2016. So we've got a lot of options today. Where are we going to start? So I want to start with uh, a story. Uh, as, a, as a preaching nerd, when you get in the company of other preaching nerds, you inevitably start talking about preaching. You share stories and failures and successes, and you share your clever interpretations and turns of phrases. And in these conversations, everyone sort of gets a turn to preach a few bars for the group. At one of these little gatherings, uh, the question was raised among us, what is your walk-up theme music right before you preach? So, you know, like baseball batters have this theme music that they get as they walk to the plate. And action heroes get this theme song as they walk toward the final battle. What is your music as you walk toward the pulpit? Now, we knew it was a good question because we got like a good hour of conversation out of it. About halfway through, my wife said that her theme music would be I Have Confidence from The Sound of Music. Now, we all laughed, but as we thought about it a little bit more, we all realized that this is totally brilliant. The words totally fit the anxiety that comes with trying to help or save or care or move or love these people in front of you. So listen, listen to these words. Oh, I must stop these doubts, all these worries. If I don't, I just know I'll turn back. I must dream of the things I'm seeking. I'm seeking the courage I lack, the courage to serve them with reliance, face my mistakes without defiance, 
Show them I'm worthy, and while I show them, I'll show me. So let them bring on all their problems. I'll do better than my best. I have confidence they'll put me to the test, but I'll make them see I have confidence in me. The words fit the preaching life in a, in a number of different ways. It's a brilliant choice. It's also a brilliant choice because, in a sense, it's Maria's walk-up music. Yeah, it's sure. It's, it's the good. way for her to get herself prepared for what is to come. Right. It's it's her opening soliloquy. It's the um. It's it's the I have a dream. It's the um. Uh, something's coming from West Side Story. Right. It's all right. of these kind of let me see the world kind of things that you get in the opening act. Right. And that's the thing, though, is that she needs this music in order to prepare herself for this job. And she really begins to express herself with music. And so as we look at this world of ours, the ethos and worldview of creative and intellectual folk tends to swing from the rational to the romantic, right? We look in our current world now, and we see this pervasive sense of postmodernity. But what's postmodernity, if not a return to 18th century romanticism? The musical as a genre pushes against the purely rational to create a medium where the experience and the emotion of a particular character or a particular experience can't be summed up with just words or acting, but we actually need music to understand the full extent of the experience. And so the musical seems to understand that the ecstatic or the emotional, the transcendent has a degree of inexpressibility that needs multiple mediums to come together to even come close to matching the holy experience that comes with love or of care or of anxiety in the face of mission or of joy in learning something new or of fear in a stormy world. And so as I was watching The Sound of Music, I realized it's not just a musical. It's also this meditation on the sound of music, the power of music in our lives. It, in the white mainline Protestant church, I think we've lost a lot of this understanding. Ministers are trained with very little musical experience. And so we've stopped mining the power of music to help buttress our words and extend a little further into the realm of the unknowable, into the realm of the ecstatic and the transcendent. And so the worship service has become moments of music and talk without it ever coming together in a, a sort of cohesive whole. Now, The Sound of Music is like the widest movie ever. Uh, I don't think that there's a single person of color in the whole movie. Uh, but this movie seems to know what the black church in the U.S. knows and what many churches that are from South America and Sub-Saharan Africa also know, which is that music and tonality and rhythm that these are vital tools in the bag of worship. And the, also, the other thing about justification, and let me end with this. Julie Andrews is a demigod. She requires no justification, Matt. She just simply justifies. So that's what I say. Matt, did my choice stir in you any ideas about the church and its ministry? It certainly did. I had a really uh, profound experience of revisiting this movie and rewatching this movie. I don't think that I had 
sat with it since I attempted to watch the Carrie Underwood NBC Live version. Right. And I'm not sure when the last time was that I had watched the full theatrical Julie Andrews. Uh, and I certainly you will get no objection from me on her godlike qualities in this particular film. My wife and I devolved into a conversation that roughly went like this, which was, if we had to send one human to the Intergalactic Council to represent Earth, who would it be? And it might be Julie Andrews. I think in 2016, I'm going with Lin-Manuel Miranda, but it, right. but I, I, you know, she's on the short list. Anyway, I'm fully with you on The Sound of Music as not just a musical, but a musical attempting to justify the power of music. I don't think there's any question that that's what's happening in this text. And for really obvious reasons, like they managed to escape Nazis by singing in a music festival. Right. It's only because they have turned into a musical family that they that they acquire the liberation that they need to acquire at the end of a film. I mean, it's, it's pretty basic metaphors that are happening there. Right. She's able to, you know, like thaw the icy heart of the captain by singing a song or teaching the song to his children. Right. And th- this is... I don't think that there's a lot of musical apologetics that I'm not sure are really necessary by that point in the history of the American musical, but certainly work really well. But I, I think there's some danger underneath the surface here presented by the film. And I, I, I'm fully with you on the power and potency and theological appropriateness of music and worship. And I am a child of a lot of church choirs and believe in this stuff pretty strongly. But I think the sound of music is a little complicated. I mean, the right at the music at the folk festival at the very end, we get one of the Nazi leaders commenting that even as the Nazis have come in, that nothing is nothing in Austria has changed. Singing and music will show this to the world, which is to say that Austria, whether a free country or an oppressed country under Germany's thumb, will still be able to sing songs. And those songs are going to tell really different messages depending on the context that they're in. Uh, and, and I think that the that reads through a lot of the music and sound of music, which seems to be really joyful, but the lyrics kind of make my skin crawl in places. And, and I don't just mean stuff that has pretty obvious kind of gender problems like how do you solve a problem like maria played when she marches down the aisle yeah or, that's a bummer or that i'm part 16 is so going brutal. on 17 which is like really some very abhorrent gender language in there or even somewhere in my wicked childhood that i quoted before which i think gets at this kind of um deeply calvinist sense in this film that the Maria doesn't deserve to be in love and it's only the grace of the captain that allows her to get something that she doesn't deserve. But I'm getting even, I'm, I'm, I'm off the thread of bit. What struck me as I was thinking about this was the, the music that we sing in worship that has power that we don't necessarily always know how to channel in the right direction. I mean, the new Presbyterian hymnal that came out in 2013 has um, the, classic hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which is set to what became the Nazi national anthem. We have the Battle Hymn of the Republic in our hymnal, which was obviously one of the major hymn songs of the North during the Civil War. I want to stand in the pulpit and say that the text has deep theological integrity, but also when I have called out for us to sing Glorious things of thee are spoken. I have gotten pushback from folks in the congregation who say that how dare we be singing the German national anthem. 
I mean, I think it's fair to recognize that the music has power that goes both ways here. Right. And I think I think you're right. Even something like Amazing Grace, right, where we've built this story around it about the slave ship captain who repents. And uh, when the real story is he sold slaves for a good while after he's, he wrote that song. Yeah, kind of a jerk. Kind of a and, jerk. And and just to kind of stay on my soapbox, and again, I, I love this film, and it hits very deep sentimental places for me, but coming back to it this week, I was struck by some things, and central among them is that Edelweiss is really problematic. <laughs> I know. It is. Yeah. I the, mean, so this is... And and some of this is this this is stuff that also Zizek talks about in his analysis of the film, and I want to give him the shout out that he does, definitely doesn't need and won't hear, but nonetheless that like, you know, Edelweiss is a song about this flower that is small and white and clean and bright, um, and it is meant as a symbolic positing of Austrian nationalism up and against the evil Nazis, but like, can you imagine singing that? in the context of the European refugee crisis in 2016. Right. Like the alternative to Nazism that is posed by this movie is kind of old-fashioned, nostalgic European white supremacism. Right. And I, oh, and yes. I, and, you know, and, I, and I think to say that Edelweiss becomes this beautiful rallying cry, and it's also super problematic at the same time. Right. Yeah, you know, I think you're right to recognize that, that this, this movie is romantic to its core and so it 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 sometimes or almost entirely goes overboard with believing the positive power of music uh, at no point does it actually contend with the fact that music might not change anything it's always assumed that the power of music to um to express what is inexpressible um is present to us all and necessary um, I'm thinking, as I as I listen to you talk, Matt, that there's this beautiful poem by Auden, and it's in memory of W. B. Yeats. And Yeats has this this poem where he talks about you know perfection of the life or perfection of the art. That's the choice that you have. You can be a good person in this world, or you can be a great artist. You mm. cannot be both. And Auden's response to Yeats is like, dude chill out it's just poetry you know like it's not that great you didn't actually change anything with your poems um and that dose of reality is i think an important one to to talk about whether or not we actually have the power to change and whether or not music does aid our expression to your point that music is in some ways value neutral in the sense that it could be used in any number of different directions. Right. I think is an important one too, because uh, at some point, I think for all of um, Maria's ability to sort of be the driving protagonist of this movie, over and over again, her songs have to sort of fit some mold or she is forced to fit into some particular, um, particular role or form. And, by the last quarter of the movie, it gets pretty tiring. You know, I actually prefer Maria the postulant to Maria the wife. Well, yeah, because Maria the wife falls into some pretty stable gender roles that are really bothersome. I mean, as soon as she walks up the aisle, she stops being the fly in the ointment that she has been in the earlier parts of that film. And it feels like 
she gets compliant and dour in a way that makes Julie Andrews a little more boring than she was in the first act anyway. And she doesn't create any more songs. Right. I Which think, is I probably think just important... kind of Broadway tradition, right? I mean, they've used all their songs, and this is the part where they just kind of do reprises. I mean, that's just kind of musical stuff. I think you can see that also as, like, I think she gets hemmed in in a way that is hard for me to watch. I actually don't like that part. As soon as the unjust authority arrives, um, Julie Andrews stops trying to change the world with song. Uh, when it's just when it's just a lovely, mostly benign authority in the Abbey or in Von Trapp, you know her resistance and her subversion um, is deep and potent. Uh, when it's Nazi Germany, eh, she runs. But like Edelweiss really does have a pretty substantial cultural legacy behind it. Whether or not it changes anything, it does tend to have a kind of wake behind it. The uh, the original actor who played Captain Von Trapp on Broadway talks about the fact that every night after the show, he would go out and native Austrians would be waiting to thank him for singing one of their old folk tunes. Even right. despite the fact that Rodgers and Hammerstein composed it originally for the show, but it so feels like something authentic and is treated as something authentic that it became a, sim- a symbol of Austrian pride. Dude, and then just, li- that is like so fully the church right now, right? I mean, that is crazy to think of that anecdote and to overlay that over people's understandings of their hymns. Right. So sure. in, in, in my tradition, uh, we took a hymnal and took, um, beloved hymns and removed all of the anachronistic language and all of the gender exclusive language from the hymnal and from these old hymns, uh, with good reason. Uh, and yet, when the hymnal came out, people lost their minds. Yeah, that happens. Uh, that happened to it, us in, in 90 when the previous edition of the Presbyterian hymnal came out and we had stripped a lot of the particularly gendered language out and it was it was nasty. Yeah, but I think it's because that 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 music has become a way to express something that people know as innate, but haven't been able to say themselves. And Edelweiss actually also becomes a church hymn. So this was the most interesting thing I found in digging no around this morning. Yeah, so the United Methodist Church, not officially because it's still under copyright, and this became a kind of point of legal dispute with the Rogers and Hammerstein estate up against the various Methodist churches in this country who had taken the tune to Edelweiss and had put English language words to it for use in worship. May the Lord, mighty God, bless and keep you forever. Grant you peace, perfect peace, courage in every endeavor. Lift up your eyes and see God's face, full of grace forever. May the Lord, mighty God, bless and keep you forever. It's a beautiful benediction set to this like weirdly corporately produced symbol of Austrian nationalism. I mean, it's just a very strange thing. Yeah, post-war creation of a pre-war folk tune. You know, like you can you can hear the nostalgia in the lyrics itself. Right. And uh, I, I think that's part of what is so powerful and dangerous about it is that it, it can create this artificial thing uh, and it can 
imbue that artificial thing with some 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 of the worst characteristics in our human instinct. In the case of the film, it's this, I would argue, kind of very racist idea of what Austria is and and a kind of nostalgia for what it probably never was that only makes sense up and against Nazi and Hitler, which, of course, not like I'm arguing for that. And it, I, th- I think it works in our churches, too, as we've said. Yeah, and, and in many ways, Austria then becomes the stand-in for the West, who who is at the same time doing this this with the rest of its tunes and folk tunes so that they take on new significance in a post-war era. Um, and I think you can see that in church music, too, um, that, that church music um, becomes a sort of rallying cry, not just for people of faith, but for that strange combination of civic duty and, um, and faithful proclamation. That sounds pretty good to me, Adam, but I think it's about time for us to move on. Our next segment is called Preaching to the Choir, so we are looking at the lectionary passages for May 8th, when we will celebrate Ascension Sunday. We've got the end of the Gospel of Luke and the opening of Acts, when Jesus is lifted up into heaven, as well as the text from Ephesians 1 about Christ reigning in all the heavenly places, not to mention a few psalms for good measure. So what I want to know is, preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming, where does the sound of music show up in your sermon? So as I was reflecting on Ascension Sunday, I was really struck by how the Ascension is a weird thing. I've taken so many theology classes, too many to count, and I've read so much about theologies of the crucifixion or the resurrection, and I've read way too many uh, books about incarnational ministry. And yet I don't remember reading a single thing in all of this theology about a theology of the Ascension. The gospel writers think it's important, and yet it seems to bear little weight in the history of Christian thought. If you're listening and I've totally missed something that I shouldn't have missed, send us an email or mention it on our Facebook page about where I should look for a theology of the Ascension. But as I reflect about or reflect upon Jesus ascending into heaven— I realize that there are a couple of important consequences of this move, and they both have to do with authority. So first, the ascension shifts the authority of Christ, who is on earth, to the disciples, uh, as we'll see next week, uh, to the church as well. And so this is the focus of the Acts passage. But secondly, it shifts Christ's authority from an earthly ministry to a place of authority at the right hand of the Father. And this is part of the focus of the Luke passage and the Ephesians passage. And so this tension between the earthly authority established in the church or with people and the heavenly authority, well, that's a a really important and interesting question in the life of the church. So in The Sound of Music, Maria has authority issues. Basically, she refuses to follow the rules. She lies. She disobeys the Reverend Mother. She refuses to follow the captain's orders. She is practiced in the art of disobedience so that when the Nazis show up three quarters of the way through the movie, she knows what to do. She knows how to disobey them. And so she's regularly trying to figure out what it means to be devoted to something bigger than herself. 
And so in that way, no authority is safe from her assessment. The authority has to prove itself before she trusts it. In my own tradition, the freedom of conscience is an important theological principle. And yet the freedom of conscience only works when there is some higher authority by which we judge our own conscience. How do we decide whether our resistance to authority is just and noble rather than intractable and churlish? And so this is an especially important question for preachers as we think about these texts, which is, who exactly is the authority by which we judge our words? It can't simply be our conscience or our community. It also has to be the word. And if it's the word, it's also the ascended one, the one who sits in that place of authority. And so some of those are the thoughts that have been rolling around in my head, Matt. How about you? When you think about this lectionary week, how does Sound of Music show up for you? I want to talk a little bit about spectacle with the Sound of Music. The Sound of Music was released originally in 1965 on 70mm. It's one of a generation of films that came out uh, in 70 when producers and production companies and theaters were trying to maximize the spectacle of going to the theater so they can compete against the encroachment of home television, which is a relationship that is ongoing. It's also one of a of a sequence of American musicals that were released in 70mm, uh, from Oklahoma and South Pacific, Porgy and Bess, West Side Story, Sound of Music, all from the mid-50s to the mid-60s released on this major format. And it's it's a big deal because 70mm is a larger film size. It requires bigger cameras. It requires different lenses. It requires an investment of projectors. It's, it's a major commitment to commit to doing a film in 70. And my sense is that what is going on here is an attempt to replicate the full Broadway experience of going to the show, uh, the, the closest thing you could do to that was to put this in as large a screen as possible with as lush a detail as possible, which is what the larger film stock allows you to do. It also allows you to do a, a better sound mix on the edge of the film than you would with 35. And so Sound of Music won um, Sound Design Academy Awards, as did many of these, because they put so much investment into the technology of the sound. The best comparison I can say is to compare it with the kind of major blockbusters of today. I mean, there, there's an argument in film history that the blockbuster as we know it kind of emerges around the time of Jaws. But I think that there's probably an argument to be made that in some ways these musicals are a kind of proto-blockbuster in the sense that they are pushing a certain kind of cinematic experience, the the IMAX or the 3D or whatever it is of their day. Yeah, and they cost a they lot cost of money. They cost a huge too. amount of money. So Sound of Music is a perfect example of this era of 70mm proto-blockbusters. It's got all of this rich texture and amazing focal depth throughout the film. It also has weird artifacts like characters out of proportion at the edge of the frame because they couldn't get the lensing quite right for the large cameras. And weird lighting problems famously around the gazebo sequence with the Captain and Maria where they had to underlight the, se- the film because they couldn't get it to expose right on the large format. But... My argument is that the best reason for the 7D in this film is just the sheer spectacle of the natural photography. And it shows up, it's the opening of the film when they're just hovering 70 millimeter cameras in helicopters above the Alps. It's not plot or narrative or even music at that point, though there is music playing. It's just this overwhelming event that is entirely sensory and not really rational. It takes the place of 
overture to the musical, but by doing it with this lush photography, it I think it gets to a much more almost primal place. Not for nothing, but I think this is also the most interesting part of watching these live televised musicals. It's why the NBC Sound of Musicals stinks, because the spectacular ambition of it is not high enough. It's just a stage and they move some cameras around. But when you get to the live Grease musical and they're running through this airplane hangar of a studio with all of these different cameras on dollies and trucks and all of these different extras running around, that's the spectacle of like, can they pull this thing off? When I was watching the opening mountain sequence in Sound of Music, the comp that came to mind for me in a much dorkier place is the lighting of the beacons of Gondor during return of the King <laughs> where they light the fire on top of the mountain. And then basically just so that he can fly around the South Island of New Zealand, Peter Jackson's just running all these different fires on top of the Southern Alps. Uh, I kind of want to argue that the Ascension is a spectacle. And I think it's some of the stuff you were already saying that it doesn't part of the reason that we don't have Systematic theology of the Ascension is that it's not necessarily a purely rational event. It's kind of a show that you see Jesus right. rise up into the air and you see him disappear into this cloud. And even in Ephesians 1, you get this long, flowery language that can't even seem to grasp with the reality of it, especially in the Greek, where it's just one super long Greek sentence, right? That doesn't stop for paragraphs. There's something about this story is just the show of it, is having the sensory experience of the power and authority of God that isn't about plot or rationality. Even then they wanted to see Jesus fly, right? Like, and so have we like in film, like that's still a, a, a pretty amazing thing when, when you can make the camera fly and give the sense that like you're in the clouds that you're moving. That's something you can't generally do. Uh, but the camera on a helicopter gives you that sensation. And I think I think you're, you're right to recognize that in some ways the Bible is trying to give something that's a little bit blockbustery yeah. to give a sense of something that, look, you've never seen this before. Like even with Jesus, right? He never flies into the clouds. He's like saving this to the, the end. It's the tagline from Superman 78, right? which maybe is a film we'll get to right. at some point. But the poster tagline, you will believe a man can fly which is like, we're going to sell you on this spectacle and we don't really, who cares about the plot or the characters at that point? The Bible is full of all of these miraculous things. Um, that a human being might fly like a bird is a rare one, right? I don't think that there are any other places where someone raises up into the clouds. Maybe, I mean, Elijah on sure. his chariot gets taken up, but I think you're right to recognize there is something fundamental about our desire to sort of lift from the sort of terrestrial uh, chains that we have. Um, and Jesus does like it. Imagine a perspective that you never would have been able to have except for this, this very strange moment. All right, Adam, I do think we have to say so long and farewell to the sound of music. How many songs have I referenced now? I've tried to get as many of them as I possible. I mean, just about any of them. Let me, let me tell you just a quick story. My son loves to fall asleep to so long farewell and he wants it on repeat and so on any given night from about eight o'clock to ten o'clock if you walk into our house you will hear so long farewell on repeat 
I'm not exaggerating when I've heard this song thousands of times at this point. And so when it came on, when I was watching this movie, I was like, oh, just fast forward. I cannot watch it. I cannot listen to it. It's too much. <laughs> Are you saying you didn't do all the homework and skipped ahead in the reading, Adam? I'm a little ashamed of you. I did. I, st- I skipped that. And then I rewatched I Have Confidence because that song is a force of nature. Well, you too can rewatch I Have Confidence and skip all the other stuff if you go to iTunes or Amazon right now. But we've got to move to our last segment. It's called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for this week? So today I want to talk about blood in light of Maria. And I think she in some ways can be made to represent her own type of romantic mystic. And so I've been thinking about mystics, and I had this opportunity to read a a good master's thesis on Catherine of Siena this week. And if you have a chance to read Catherine, she's amazing. And she also has this uh, constant and lasting obsession with the blood of Jesus. She writes all of these letters and almost just as instinct, just wishes people that they will be washed in the blood of Jesus. She hopes that they will be able to like drink a bucket of Jesus's blood. And so this blood imagery just shows up over and over again. And it seems totally central to her theological conception of, uh, of Christ and the incarnation. But if you look closely at her work, the blood imagery is not just about sacrifice. A lot of theology has taken the blood to um, to be central to issues of substitutionary atonement. Um, but with Catherine, it's not just that the blood is about sacrifice. It's also this font of life. It doesn't just atone. It sustains. And so she has all of these moments where she just wants to drink the blood because that's how she's going to live and sustain a life of piety and charity. And so she she wants to drink of it. She wants to ingest it. And this becomes very central to her own sacramental visions of the world. Uh, there are a number of times where she has these mystical visions and she's, um, and she's hungry, but she refuses to eat anything that's not the Eucharist. And then Jesus will show up and say, all right, Catherine, come on over. And then he'll open his side to her and then she'll drink all of his blood. But that's the thing. She doesn't drink all of his blood because it just keeps flowing. And this is where her vision of who Christ is becomes very interesting to me. The blood that we have in our bodies is a sign of our life. But if you were to take it from us, our life would end. According to Catherine, Jesus body works differently the blood just continues to flow and sustain um and she wants to drink of it okay now that is wild and interesting and i think i think there's room in our culture to retrieve some blood language as valuable as a valuable image for the church um but i want to connect catherine to uh another thing that i read recently about russian ballerinas of course you do yeah, okay, this has, I, I knew exactly where you were going to go with this. Works. It's like, he's just going to get to the Russian ballerina story. I can see it coming. <laughs> so ballerinas uh, dance on their toes. But that's uh, something that happened 
initially in um, in Russia in like the 1840s when this this ballerina Marie Taglioni she went on point for a few seconds in this ballet in this ballet, and her momentary weightlessness, the fact that she could suspend herself on her toes, just caused people to lose their damn minds, and it's almost like the 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 people in the ballet just erupted and went crazy so crazy that this group of ballet loving weirdos pulled together 200 rubles and bought the shoes that she stood on and then they cooked the shoes and ate I did them. not expect you to say that <laughs> And so I'm thinking about Catherine of Siena and her deep desire to drink that which she sees as life-giving and powerful. And this like amazing story of people who see something beautiful and unknown and almost transcendent and their deep desire to eat it as well. And as I think about this, my postlude is a little weird in the sense that I'm reflecting a lot on our deep desire to ingest that which we think is powerful. Um, and how important that is and and what that means for our vision of the sacraments and what happens in communion. So if you want to extend this conversation and you have ideas, um, I don't have a conclusion yet, but I am intrigued by Catherine's deep love of blood and the ingestion of a ballet slipper. That's what I got, Matt. How about you? So one of the best shows on television is Hiding Inside, one of the worst shows on television. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Uh, this episode should drop on Monday, May 2nd, and the CBS procedural person of interest comes back on Tuesday, May 3rd. So if you're listening to this in the first 36 hours of its availability, make an appointment with your television for Tuesday night. Person of interest is a weird show. On the surface, it's a CBS procedural, like all CBS procedurals, where smart people solve things. And the twist in this particular case is that they get their cases from a massive supercomputer that is wired into surveillance networks and cameras and cell phones and all of that tech stuff. So it's kind of a crime-solving procedural set in a very technologically aware universe. And if you watch the first half of the first season, what you will see are just a bunch of cases of the week that involve people subbing out their cell phones for things that spy on them and then solving, and then finding the answers. But underneath it, Person of Interest is a show about artificial intelligence, and in its own way, it's about sentience and almost theology. It's about the kinds of godlike power that are granted to machines and their kind of supposed human masters. It pushes past the technological moment that we are in to a kind of speculative future where these surveillance machines have the capacity to grow and learn and adopt something that feels like real intelligence. In the show's most remarkable episode, uh, the entire story is told from the perspective of a machine who is watching the human events through surveillance camera footage and then making decisions on how to interfere in those events based on calculating the probable outcomes given different inputs. Uh, wow. This is a show that asks for empathy from its human viewers for disembodied artificial intelligences not not robots but just programs running on servers somewhere and a point that they're just running on servers somewhere is actually a, a plot point in the show while actually also giving us a pretty healthy fear of what they might be capable of 
I think for those of us interested in theologies of power and intelligence, especially in a very modern digital age, this is a really interesting and critical conversation. And you are all just in time for the final season. You should start from the very tepid beginning. You kind of have to, and then it gets weirder and weirder. And I was hoping that the ratings would be good enough and CBS would just not watch their own show and would not realize how weird it had gotten. But then apparently somebody did. So they've pulled the plug and they're burning the last season starting tomorrow night, Tuesday night, May 3rd. So check it out. That's what I've got. And so, Matt, that about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus. But we're not quite done yet. I got to pick this week. I chose Julie Andrews in all of her glory. And now it's Matt's turn. Matt, what are you going to make me watch next? Where are we going? So I like this music and romance comedy thing that we're doing, but I think we can go further. And I want us to go fun, and I want us to go a little bit more modern. And what we're going to do is go watch Amy Heckerling's Clueless. (laughs) I'm going to take you back. I'm going to take you back to your 90s Valley roots. Um, I know it's going to seem like a Noxima commercial, but there's so much more there. Early Paul Rudd, man. I, love I think it'll it. be a, a great movie to talk about Pentecost and the flames of the spirit and what happens in those moments when we can all understand each other, if only for a brief second. So that's what we've got. Thanks for listening, folks. And don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you have questions about the show, if you want to tell us how we got it wrong. To be going you've been waiting in the sun too